The date is 15th April 1986. Of the security wing of the pre-trial detention center at the Hamburg police headquarters, the police brought in a contract killer for interrogation. The space contains seven people: the culprit, his wife, his lawyer, a typewriter, two police officers, and one public prosecutor. The file reads the name of the culprit as Erno Pinsner, who is sitting next to his wife, Nyuta. Around 10 a.m., the prosecutor reads his rights to Pinsner, and then says, "Court, so Mr. Pinsner, let's shoot." Unquote. The typewriter moves her hand towards the keyboard in anticipation of the answers from Pinsner. As they begin the interview, while answering the prosecutor, Pinsner calmly says, "Quote, gentlemen, this is a hostage situation." Unquote. In order to understand what went wrong on 15th April 1986, let's go back and understand the life of Erno Pinsner and what made him the assassin that we know of as the Saint Pauli killer. Hi, I am Dhanvi, and this week we are off to Germany. As always, I want to provide a disclaimer that I am not a professional when it comes to investigating a case. I am just a person who enjoys listening to true crime stories. The facts of the case presented in my content are taken from reliable sources and anything other than the established facts is a mere speculation or a fan theory and should be treated as such. Like every story cannot be complete without supporting characters, this week's story is just the same. Whoever Erno Pinsner was, his life would not be the one he lived if it weren't for the people who surrounded him. To get to know him, Let's unfold his life little by little till the day he reached that interrogation room. On 27th April 1947, Erno Pinsner was born in a middle-class family to a radio mechanic and a grocery store manager in the district of Barenfeld. From what I read, he never finished his education. Rather than that, in 1964, he went into the sea for 2 years as a seaman. A seaman is someone who works as a sailor and is below the rank of an officer in the official navy so to speak. In 1966 he worked as a driver for a few weeks and then went back to the sea. As mentioned by Erno, he wanted to continue to stay at the sea, but because of his previous minor crimes, his criminal records stopped him from moving ahead on the hierarchy chain. It's not quite clear when or where he met his first wife nor we know who she was where she was from what her name was but between 1966 and 1970 he got married to her he was sentenced to prison for the first time in 1970 as a consequence of an unknown crime but for a short amount of time and in 1971 his daughter was born Though I never found any reports of the name of the daughter or what she looked like and none of that was ever made public. Once he got out of prison, he worked as a scaffolder, tiler and butcher 
before committing a major crime in August 1975. He and his two accomplices robbed a supermarket where a 28-year-old male was working as a manager of the store. The theft resulted in the death of the store manager, though it was never made public as to who shot the manager. At one side, Wikipedia suggests that one of his accomplices shot him, while another news article suggests Pinsner did it. Regardless of that, in September 1975, Pinsner was sentenced to 10 years in prison. According to the story by Welt Daily Newspaper, an online article mentioned that the city of Barenfeld was a home to Pinsner, but was also a home to a lot of immigrants. And since you didn't belong to that area, you didn't belong to any race or color, you could get away with minor crimes. And since Erner was born there, he got a certain amount of power that he could get away with the crime. One sentence, Pinsner was sent to Fulsbuttel prison, where he served nine years and later to Weirland prison. Once he settled in prison, he got acquainted with some of the big names from St. Pauli which was at that time one of the biggest red-light districts of Hamburg and was also a house to pimps, brothel operators and drug dealers. This was also the time he got addicted to drugs and started using heroin and cocaine. Pinsner bought a .38 caliber Armenius revolver and stored it in the personal locker at Weirland prison. Under the liberal Hamburg penal system, each prisoner had locker which went unsearched by authorities. This was a loophole Erner found and used it to commit more crimes. As he was spending his time in prison, the area of St. Pauli was bursting with strip clubs and brothels. Two major gangs existed at the time. Natala Gang, that was one of the gangs, which was a pimp organization who controlled a decent amount of prostitution in the late 1970s and 80s, and GMBH, a rival, a similar organization to Nutellagal, who never interfered in each other's business. If there were any issues to be resolved, they would use fists rather than guns. During the 1980s, prostitution was slowly declining as a consequence of the rising fear of HIV infections. Because of this, international illegal organizations started getting more popular in the district alongside the German pimps. Illegal activities like drug trafficking, arms dealing, or receiving stolen goods became a source of income. This resulted in disputes between prostitution and drug traffickers. Finally, in July 1984, Pinsner was released from prison and without wasting time, he started his journey as a contract killer. He started working for the red light district to make a name for himself and was famous among German gangsters since he would kill anyone for the right price. Between 1984 and 1986, in mere two years, he killed at least 13 people. Once out of prison, the Chicago gang, a gang which was similar to Nutella and GmbH, commissioned him to scare and kill people who tried to disturb the gang's drug circle. They asked him to get Yehuda Erzi's finger, to which he happily obliged. So, on 7th July 1984, his first kill 
was an ex-brothel owner and dealer, Yehuda Urzi, who had an unpaid drug deal on his head and also blackmailed his former wife and daughter for money. Pinsner shot him in the head, killing him instantly. For the deed, he received 40,000 Dutch mark, which is equal to approximately $22,000 in today's time. 12 September 1984, his next victim was Peter Feilmayer, one of the partners at a club named MB Club, which served as an organization of drug trafficking and illegal gambling. The two partners of the club asked Pinsner to assassinate Peter by giving him $17,000. So, as Peter parked his car in a garage complex, Pinsner shot him in the head, again killing him instantly. As time passed, because of the killings, everyone feared Pinsner in the red light district. Rather than getting a partnership in the brothel business as he hoped, they sought him as a contract killer amongst the many pimps and gangsters of the city. At one end of the city, several murders were being committed. But at the other end, police were working hard to identify a link between these dead bodies. At the end of 1970s, it was speculated that high-ranking police officers were working together with pimps and prostitutes, forming an investigation group against organized crime. The police worked with various informants and used wiretaping in order to find a link between all the murders and also to find one important piece of evidence, the murder weapon. According to the similarities of the murder to catch the culprit, a formation of special commission took place named SOCO. The evidence collected from the undercover operations was compiled and started questioning the witnesses and suspects. On the morning of 15th April 1986, a police task force entered Pinsner's house. As Pinsner exited his bathroom with disheveled hair, naked and wet except for his socks, police searched his entire apartment and found the murder weapon. According to the article by Welt, they found the murder weapon, the .38 caliber Armenian revolver, on the sofa, loaded. Once arrested, Pinsner was ready to cooperate with the police and agreed to name the people who were working with him. Around the time of his arrest, a bounty of 300,000 Dwichmug or $165,000 was on the head of Pinsner as he was preparing to testify in front of the public prosecutor. Every criminal has a right to defend himself. In Pinsner's case, he had someone who not only helped him with judicial work, but also helped smuggle cocaine and heroin into the prison. Named Isolde Oxley Misfeld, she was a woman with struggles which forced her to comply with Pinsner to get more financial stability. Erner influenced her to such an extent that it led to smuggling the murder weapon, which he will use to kill others and then himself. The event of 15th April 1986, articulated by Weld, took place as follows. Around 9 am, Detective Inspector Timo Schultz appeared in the security wing to pick up prisoner Pinsner. Before Inspector Timo arrived, they searched Pinsner thoroughly, 
for questioning at the police headquarters. Once handcuffed to the officer, they took Pinsner to the police vehicle, which was followed by a mobile task force car. Police were afraid that the people whom he worked for might want to silence him once and for all to save their faces. So, Pinsner was surrounded by officers and had high security till he reached the headquarters. Once they arrived there, they took him to the security wing. At the entrance, public prosecutor Wolfgang Bistri, Pinsner's defense attorney, Isolde Oshle Misfeld, his 39-year-old wife Yuta Pinsner, a typographer, were waiting in the visitor's room. Pinsner had declared that he would confess to his crimes but demanded his wife's presence, as permitted under the Code of Criminal Procedure. Until now, the professional killer had confessed to five murders and another six in different letters and conversations, including all the details related to the murder that only he would know. Bistri entered the security wing with two other women. The security did not search the defense lawyer because the regulations did not provide for it and did not search for the wife since she accompanied the lawyer. This was a huge mistake as the gun, which will be used to execute the murder and suicide, stayed hidden in Yuta's underwear. Apparently, in her handbag, Yuta carried a wool stocking with 12 cartridges and later went to the toilet to hide the revolver in her purse. In room 418, at 10 o'clock, everyone was present. Shortly after 10 o'clock, the prosecutor began the investigation. Bistri instructed Pinsner on his rights and then, in a cheerful and a friendly tone, said, quote, So, Mr. Pinsner, let's shoot. Unquote. The typist was ready with her hands on a typewriter, anticipating the first sentence. At 10.20 a.m., exactly at that moment, Pinsner reached into his wife's purse, drew his revolver, and calmly said, quote, Well, gentlemen, this is a hostage situation. Unquote. Bistri jumped up, hands outstretched, and fell seconds later with a yelp as two shots from Pinsner's revolver entered his body. The two officers escaped into the corridor while the typist took cover behind the desk. The lawyer took shelter under a table, and at the same time, the officials from Mobile Task Force, Emergency Doctors, and Paramedics had been alerted. Pinsner pushed a desk in front of him, called his daughter, and said his goodbyes. He then handed the phone to Yuta, while she said, quote, What is happening now is what we wanted. Unquote. She knelt in the middle of the room as Pinsner put the barrel of the gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. As she lay dead on the floor, Binsner kneeled next to her in the same manner and pulled the trigger, resulting in his own death. The damage was done. Binsner escaped the harsher sentence by executing his perfect plan, by simply manipulating two women to agree to his actions and requests and carry out his quote-unquote execution. Soon the commandos stormed the room and took the badly injured prosecutor, the typist, and the lawyer to the hospital. A day after this event, the public prosecutor succumbed to his injuries, closing the list of people Pinsner killed by adding his name in the end. Once things calmed down in the headquarters, several questions arose. 
First, the security precautions in the police buildings and prisons were under massive criticism. The lady lawyer was also under investigation for being a part of the deed as she was the one who got him the weapon. The court sentenced her to 6 and a half years of suspension on the pretense of helping with the murder. The open prison in which they kept him also received major backlash as the lockers which were provided to all the prisoners were never checked. The weapon that was used by Pinsner to kill when he was on leave from the prison when undetected in prison lockers. If there were regular inspections, they could have avoided the murders Pinsner committed to a great extent and this day would cease to exist. The interrogation room where this horrible murder suicide occurred no longer exists today. The headquarters has been relocated since then and the building is now unidentifiable in the cityscape. If he had received a proper sentence, the case would have done justice to all his victims. Pinsner was someone who loved having power in his hands and being able to close a chapter the way he wanted. Instead of giving the police the ability to take away his power, he took control of the situation and did exactly what he wanted. Ultimately, claiming all the power for himself in the end. The revolver with which he committed suicide is on display at the Police Museum of Hamburg. Maybe as a reminder of the criminal that he was and their shortcomings, which led to the rise of someone like Erno Pinsner. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shades of Maka. If you want to hear more about true crime stories, be sure to subscribe to our podcasts wherever you are listening. You can also find the images related to the case covered on the podcast on our Instagram and Twitter at Shades of Maka. Follow us on social media to receive updates on other episodes and let us know if there's a case you want us to cover. Stay tuned for more tales from the dark side on Shades of Maka.